Hello, welcome to another episode of the Beatles Books podcast. My name is Joe Wisby and I run the at Books Beatles Instagram account where I'm archiving my 400 plus Beatles books. Today my guest is Ashley Khan, an author, educator and music journalist. He's a professor of music history at NYU and has written acclaimed books on John Coltrane, Miles Davis and Carlos Santana. He brings us George Harrison on George Harrison, Interviews and Encounters, a collection of George's most revealing and entertaining interviews from 1962 to 2000. I started by asking Ashley where his Beatle journey started. I just turned 60 and, uh, you know, for many people in my generation, the Beatles were a gateway drug. You know, um, my parents, uh, when they bought the first stack of albums for me, I remember Jesus Christ Superstar, uh, uh, Aqualung by uh, Jethro Tull, and uh, Beatles Best Of. And uh, I just remember falling in love with um, uh, stuff like the the harmonies and the guitar lines, etc., and years later, you know, I would have the terminology, I, I would have the awareness of how to unpack what was inside the Beatles music and why it was so incredibly embracing immediately, you know, uh, even to someone who had not kind of worked their way through the Beatles path, you know, from their mop top days and their, you know, reconfiguring you know, Chuck Berry and Motown numbers and to the point of their extreme, you know, individual stamp on popular music. So uh, for me, you know, the Beatles have always been an important towering shadow, you know, uh, casting a huge shadow over the, the, the um, you know, uh, uh, popular music uh, in the modern era you know, uh, in, you know, environments. I mean, it's, it's something that is, uh, you know, it's like having a, 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 you know, Mount Everest. You've got to consider it. You've got to think about it. And ultimately you may have to climb it. <laughs> yeah. I, I've been climbing it for some years now, so I know exactly what you mean. Uh, okay. So just moving on to the book, obviously you bring us this wonderful book, George Harrison on George Harrison interviews and encounters, uh, just a little bit of background about the, the book itself if, if that's okay so was this sure. a pro- was this something was this a project what attracted you first of all to this project well what attracted me to the project was george harrison of course because i've been uh, more and more as 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 i say in the uh, preface i think that as music fans not just beatles fans but as music fans uh grow mature you know evolve i think that um you know the idea of choosing a favorite beetle and in that way, you kind of define who you are and what path you're on and how music kind of interacts with your worldview. I think that George Harrison is a place where many people end up. They might have, you know, liked Ringo or Paul at the very start or had that long association with John, who was, you know, always the, the rebel, you know. Uh, but the idea of George as this very uh, um, uh, mature and kind of um, uh, authentic, extremely authentic. I mean, because this is one of the things that really came across in this project is discovering just how authentic he was at the beginning and remained so throughout his life. Uh, The book itself is part of a series 
uh, called interviews and encounters, or even before that, it was referred to as musicians in their own words. And it's kind of the um, uh, one of the flagship, uh, you know, projects of a small independent publisher out of Chicago, Chicago Review Press. So they've done the same thing with John Lennon, yeah. with David Bowie, with Led uh-huh. Zeppelin, with John Coltrane and Miles Davis, too. Yeah, I think it's really interesting what you say there about the, the perception of George in 2020. I think certainly over time in the last maybe 10, 15 years, particularly, I think you could sort of say the same for Paul as well, reputation wise. I think his reputation has changed in the last 10, 15 years to certainly a more favourable response from people. But I think George is really, you know, obviously the phrase economy class Beatles was one that was used a lot for, for George and Ringo through the 60s and into the 70s even. But I think now that there's no way you could say that about George. People that Often I find actually a lot of people that don't really that aren't huge Beatles fans gravitate to George more than they would. Yeah. More, more, I'm not sure why why that is. Maybe because he's a, li- he's a little bit removed from from the Beatles a, a little bit. Maybe I, I I don't think it's about that. I think the Beatles is part of his DNA and always will be, and that helps as far as you know why we want to pay attention to him. I think what it is is that you know uh, we have gone through so many. Um, uh, growing and painful growing stages as music lovers, as a music audience, just as people, you know, from the 1960s, the innocent days of the 60s till now, and how we demand a certain kind of connection with our music. We demand a sophistication. We demand a, demand a depth. We, we, we expect to, to have music uh, that is both popular and commercial, but also something that comments seriously on current events and uh, political and, in this case, racial and social situation in in, in my country. Yeah. You know, we want this, we expect this. And what that means is that musicians are held to a higher standard than they ever once were uh, as pure entertainers. And George was at the forefront of that. He was the point of that spear of like um, developing a role that embraced or or at least, you know, absorbed a kind of social uh, importance and a social role uh, as a musician, but in an authentic way so that it wasn't like posturing. That it, and we've had so much posturing, you know. I'm not going to mention any names because no. I might step on people's toes. Okay. But, you know, the, the idea of that balance between extreme personal authenticity and dedication to this idea of using fame and fortune, you know, as a, as a um, uh, deliverer of social messages, as an uh, activator, of, uh, a mobilizer of uh you know on a social level that's 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 very delicate you know uh uh high wire you know walk to make and george was uh someone who was pioneering that at a very high level when many people weren't and or weren't doing it successfully let's put it that way true Yes, yes, I I completely understand. Uh, I know that's a mouthful and a lot no, no, no. of ideas done back there, Joe. But, On this podcast, you know. we we enjoy depth. We believe me. So you you know, hopefully okay. you'll feel at home doing that. Um, okay, so let let's look a, li- a little bit at the book itself and and some of the interviews that that you collate in there. Um, mm-hmm. 
how do you think, just a very general question to start off with, the, the journey from that very first radio interview with Monty Lister in 1962, right the way through to the, a, a web chat, you know, the idea of a web chat in 1962 is, just shows in, in a nutshell how far the, the world had come in George's Thank lifetime. Thank you for picking up on that. I mean, yeah. I, I, I love the idea of hitting different formats and Absolutely. how you go from radio to TV and then eventually, you know, too bad we didn't get to streaming, you know, with George, but by 2001, you know, uh, he was there at the cutting edge. With, Absolutely. He was chatting on, on uh, MSN and yeah. Yahoo, you know. I think actually people often ask the question, what would John Lennon have been like on social media? Uh, I, I think a really in, a more interesting question would have been what George would have been like. I think actually George would have been, well, I don't want to say more um, refined than John. John, obviously, as we know, was n generally not about winning coming forward and social media may have been a dangerous tool for John then and we'll never know. Uh, but, yeah. I think, but I think George would have been, as you say, really considered in his use of it and been, been someone that, that used it to hopefully spread a positive message. Yeah, well, I mean, it, it sort of speaks to what I was just mentioning about that delicate balance, that high wire walk, yeah. you know, of how do you how do you put yourself out there publicly and yet maintain a sense of uh, uh, a dedication to why you're doing it and don't come across as self-serving. And the, the problem now with social media is that it's made for self-serving. Yeah. You know, uh, uh, it's it's made to develop your own brand. And in fact, you get, you know, uh, huge kudos and, and pats on the back for the number of followers you get. It's all about numbers, you know, it, it, and, and even if you say the wrong thing, if your if your tweet is then shared, you know, to millions, it doesn't matter, you know. And yeah. I think George would have a huge issue with that yeah. aspect. Yeah, I agree. You know, I absolutely agree. That, so... it's, the, that the substance is gone, you know. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I do agree. Absolutely. So just as I say, going back to the book slightly. So that journey from Monty Lister to that web chat um, in, in the, the last year, I think, of his life, George. Uh, yeah. What did you get from looking at how, how he's, his personality changed from that, that 20 year old, 19 year old in that first interview? Was there something that, that was obviously came across on that journey for you? Yeah, well, I mean, like I was saying, there there's this amazing consistency of authenticity right. that he is in full public light tackling questions of why am I here? What am I doing? What is the nature of, 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 of the musical expression and, and the messages that I deliver through the music? You know, and you, you don't need me to, 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 you know, hit every point along no. the way. But I mean, no. you can hear it in his music from, you know, especially with all things must pass as a kind of dividing line for both getting out of the Beatles, establishing his own identity and establishing his kind of life's mission you know, yeah. on a spiritual level. Yeah. Um, but the, you know, the, the, the development, uh, listen, there's, it's like any person. It's wonderfully human. Mm. It's uh, wonderfully um, uh, reflective of the days that it's, uh, in which these interviews take place. You know, he's talking with a lot more depth, you know, even by the 1970s, because the media people he's talking to have a lot more depth. Yeah. The people he's responding to in the early 60s, like the first tour of the U.S., etc., 
you know, the the reporters are asking the most inane yeah. kind of questions that have no depth to it, do not even recognize a certain level of intelligence on the part of the musicians. Yeah. And, you know, add on 15, 20 years and Rolling Stone, you know, interviewers are asking him questions that are perhaps even deeper than they should be because yeah. he's not a politician. Yeah. But they do want to know how he engages with the politics of the day. Um, another kind of measuring stick of, of, of Georgia's own growth is, of course, his feelings about the Beatles and how he feels about it just as the Beatles explosion is happening, which he's very proud of. Uh, you know, once they start to get somewhat um, left-handed compliments from the press, you know, about them having too much money, about mm -hmm. them being too popular. And then, of course, the in internal divisions that never really get settled. I mean, especially between him and Paul. Um, and you can hear, uh, you can feel, you know, the, the, the disappointment in 1970, and especially in 1988, when Paul did not show up at the uh, uh, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame yeah. induction ceremony. Yeah. Uh, I mean, he is heartbroken, yeah. both because John is not there and that Paul, it's just him and Ringo up there. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm sure we'll come back to the late 80s. Uh, a question I had that tied in quite well, actually, with what you were just saying about a dividing line. There's an interview in the book, which is given to Derek Taylor in the Bahamas during obviously when they were there filming help. And it's, it's almost the last of that light, even though Derek Taylor, we know was an incredibly intelligent man. He's obviously doing that interview for a certain audience. So, right. so, you know, there's questions about his jeans in there, you know, what jeans are you wearing and stuff. And then there's a, an immediate change to the, the next interview in early 67, the, spiritual, the spirituality comes in completely in his answers and to a certain degree, as you say, with the questions in such a short space of time. Was there something you think that that changed in George over that year that meant his attitudes, his, his feelings almost altered so dramatically? Well, you're you're actually missing one one other on. important. Uh, that's the Maureen Cleave, mm. you know, uh, yeah. uh, interview. Uh, by the way, I should add that you know uh, one of the, one of the driving forces in doing this book was to try and find the original tapes or transcripts of the interviews, okay. so that they, I, I, you know, that George's voice and his feelings and his direct answers would not be filtered through the journalist's kind of editorial, you know, uh, filter. Um, but uh, that that of course was not possible with some very old articles like back in 66. Uh, but the Maureen Cleave one, I think also serves as a dividing, dividing line because you really, it, it's just before he marries Patty. Okay. He has his first own house and the house is starting to get invaded now and again where certain street signs around it are being stolen by Beatles fans, etc. And uh, he finds his garden wall is falling apart because people keep leaning on it or trampling on it and his um uh he, he's done he's done with Beatlemania by then and he's uh, you know definitely answering with a certain uh almost being pushed you know so fast into his adulthood at that point that he has to kind of maintain and he has to figure out how, how to survive financially 
how to survive emotionally. You know, he's about to get married to Patty. You know, he's um, he's got to survive that that sort of balance between the private and public life. And um, you can really feel it in that Maureen Cleave, um, you know, uh, uh, interview. By the way, Maureen, uh, unfortunately, I couldn't reach her, but I did find this article through Barney Hoskins' wonderful resource, which is Rock's Back Pages. Yeah, yeah. And they were very much a kind of uh, a, a, a starting point. Uh, they helped me light the match right. that, that, you know, uh, set off this whole um, uh, project. And he, um, you know, he said that he has tried to reach Maureen. And, of course, Maureen is known as perhaps maybe the person who um, uh, the tune Norwegian Wood was written about, you know. But and he, but she did these four portraits, one of each beetle, that came out in uh, one of the leading papers of the day. And I'm forgetting it, Evening Post or something I think it's like Evening that. Standard, yeah. Oh, Evening Standard, thank you. And uh, and those are wonderful portraits. And that for me, uh, but Joe, I appreciate what you're saying because I think that 66, 67 uh, uh, dividing line is exactly the dividing line. I think a lot of it also had to do with his friendship with Ravi Shankar, uh, his falling in love with uh, Indian music, and the idea of like, oh my God, there's so much more out there. You know, and once you, I, you know, that's like the thread on the, on the knitted sweater that if you start to pull it, the whole sweater falls apart, you know, and I think it, it began because of that kind of realization that on a spiritual, musical, cultural level, he had, so, he was just beginning to understand that there's a whole big world out there. I think interestingly there, your point is that um, he's obviously the youngest Beatle. But he's the one really in that 66 kind of crossroads that is most aware of the future because you've got, you've got Paul who's running around London with Jane Asher, you know, going to plays, poetry readings, absorbing all this stuff, living in the moment. You've got John isolated, you know, maybe not eating LSD at this point, but certainly not his prime self um, in maybe at that point, even a loveless marriage with a son that he can't connect with. And you've got Ringo, of course, quite happily kind of chuckling along with Maureen. So the three of them have got their own situation. George is really the one, and I hadn't thought about it until you just said it then, that is looking to the future, that is, is aware. I mean, obviously Taxman itself is a song about, about money, and George, yeah. George wants to make sure that he's got enough money to, yeah. to, to it, live It's funny you mention that because one, one of the discoveries in these interviews, uh, and by the way, I went, I went deep. I, I went radio. I went TV. I went to speeches and, you know, I mean, like press conference at the beginning of the 74 uh, tour in the U.S., his only real tour. Yeah. that he ever did on his own, yeah. you know, um, as well as the, as you mentioned, the chats, the online chats from 2001, etc. Um, a speech that he gives at the, uh, at the uh, 10th anniversary of Handmade Films. And of course, this, the induction ceremony speech at the Rock Hall of Fame in 88. Yeah. You know, so I try to, you know, uh, get a lot of different kind of, uh, um, a, you know, uh, bits and pieces of George you know, from all this uh, uh, different eras and different formats into the book, you know. But I, I, I got to say that, you know, I think that George would be the first one to say, 
I, I did not see the future. I, I, however, I kept my eyes lidded from the spotlight uh, more, I think, more than anyone else. I think that, you know, with Ringo, you've got someone who has a very public face and a very private um, uh, um, persona that he compartmentalizes and protects. I don't think many people see the private Ringo. You know, it, but he is so good in the spotlight to this day, you know, of, of always having something fun to say, etc. Uh, Paul, of course, is the dedicated career entertainer, you know, and God bless him for it because, you know, it has taken him so far and, and he has worked so well in so many different collaborative projects and his own projects, you know, so I can't take that away from him. No. And John, of course, was someone who unfortunately just wasn't with us for, you know, a big chunk of the journey like, you know, the other three. But George is the one, I think, who developed this inner kind of compass, this inner sense of how he was going to go. And yes, it was the future. It, it was this place that all of us would follow. But I think it was because of that internal sense of who he was, which was very strong, and the idea that he found his own kind of North Star to follow, so to speak, with, um, you know, Eastern spirituality, etc. And he never wavered. I mean, he came out of a day when, you know, a lot of rock stars had a lot of gurus, had a lot of swamis, had a lot of leaders that they followed for a minute. But George never, never stopped. And his spiritual journey was never defined anyway by one certain path. I mean, he, of course, had a very strong connection and it lasted his whole life with, with you know, the Hare Krishna movement. Sri Prabhupada. There's some conversations between George and Sri Prabhupada in the uh, in the book, of course. But how he develops his own journey, his own path, uh, utilizing the Hare Krishna teachings as well as other Vedic and Hindu kind of influences, is his own his own way. Interestingly, I've found that both Alice Coltrane, who I've written a lot about, and Carlos Santana, yeah. you know, who I uh, co-wrote his uh, memoir with, um, also did that. They they were they were very much attached to a certain guru for a, for a moment for a while, right. but then they developed their own path afterwards. Right. Okay. One of the, if I could just move along slightly into George's sure, into George's please. career. For me, one of the key interviews in the book is the Dick Cavett interview from 1971. Now, this is, a, this is an interview that I'm sure many of those listening will be aware of. They may have watched on YouTube. I think first, something that I get from the book is seeing it written down. You get a slight different sense of, of what was said. What was your view on that interview? It's George almost, uh, I don't want to say a peak of his powers, but I, th I think it certainly captures a really important part of George's life. Well, I wouldn't say he was at the peak of his powers. I would say that, you know, his, his powers were with him throughout his life. Yeah. How, how, how much he, 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 he decided to, you know, throw out there in public. Um, I, I, you know what, I'll, I'll, I'll do a, a comparison with the Dick Cavett thing in a second, but okay. I'm so happy you brought this up, Joe. It's, it's absolutely one of my favorite moments in the book. Yeah. Um, and as you'll notice, what I found was the original tape. And what I really wanted to show 
um, like I said, with with the idea of unfiltered George, you know, was to show how the whole TV show was presented to the American public at the time. So there's text that I write, a few paragraphs that kind of set up, set the stage, and then I move myself back. And the first thing you see, you read, is Dick's warming up the audience with some very, very cheesy humor, you know? I mean, so you get a sense of where the sense of humor on the mainstream level was at the at the time. I think of the Dick Frost show also, you know, there there's some some uh, t- uh, crowd warming stuff right. that I included as well. Yeah. And then there's the brief music moment with Gary Wright where, you know, uh, post Spooky Tooth and, and uh, George is sitting in. And then George is now in the chair, mm. you know, right next to Dick. And, and Dick's kind of trying to warm him up. And Dick is doing his best to balance the TV standards of the day in America of how you interact with a even a counterculture figure like George Harrison and uh you 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 know uh, uh, proceed to make it mainstream and you know uh, uh worthy of the commercials that the, your TV advertisers are buying for the show and in fact that becomes a big topic that they talk about American TV mm-hmm. and the number of commercials that they have to deal with during the show, the number of cutaways to commercials I, I just blow George away, yeah. and he's and he keeps talking about it, yeah. and uh, you know, Dick is trying his best to kind of maneuver that into a a, a, a sensible discussion, not just a critique of his own TV show, but you know, you get a sense that George is at a point where he is done. The sponge is full, you know post Beatles and then of course the pain of the Beatles breakup all at the same time and this is right after that and so he has been talked into going on the show and he said but I'm gonna go and I will promote Ravi Shankar's latest movie that I helped make possible uh, a long forgotten film called Raga and he keeps kind of nudging dick (laughs) to get back to raga and not just talk about uh you know does he still stay in touch with john paul and ringo um but you know uh, it's very honest and it's not that it's entertaining or not entertaining it's informative it's revealing and that i think is the point is that you know that's the kind of uh media interaction that george wanted to have even back in the 60s. I want to talk really about stuff like, you know, I mean, Dick even asked him asked him a question at some point, do you think that your exploratory spirit with drugs unfortunately had a negative effect on, you know, the youth of the day? And his response to that, I won't, I won't ruin it. I think people should go to the book. But his response is very deep. You know, and he he talks about something like that on a very honest level. And I take my hat off to Dick, you know, for actually asking the question and, 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 uh, you know, taking the risk of polarizing the the discussion or totally um, having his guest walk out on him. But George accepts the question and he responds very authentically and very honestly. 
I think it's interesting because, of course, that same year, Dick Cavett would interview one John Lennon and Yoko Ono, of course, which is, in, uh, I'm sure you've seen that interview as well. That, that actually happened before. Right. Because they make a joke of like, you know, in fact, Yoko sat in that very chair, George. And then he and stands he, up. And he, and he jumps up as if to say, you know, let me, let me not get cooties. Yeah. You know? <laughs> hey, Joe, I was going to say that, you know, in, in comparison to this, there's one other TV interview he does uh, that is very similar in how he does his best to handle some very uncomfortable, awkward moments on the part of, um, I mean, the, Dick Cavett was very prepared. Okay, mm. he might have been cheesy, he's a mm. comedy writer, etc. But he was definitely dedicated to making the show work. You know, and you get that feeling. However, there's another interview from 1989. This is when the Traveling Wilburys were working on their second album. Yeah. And Roy Orbison had just died. Yeah. And it's this impromptu in the middle of a, a rehearsal kind of um, when MTV had just developed MTV News in the late 80s. So MTV has almost been on on the uh, on the the scene for about um, eight years by then. Yeah, eighty one. About, about eighty one, eighty two. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, they've been they've been around for a while. They now have a news department, and they sent out a journalist who I don't want to name. I know who she is, and she's doing one of the worst unprepared interviews with the three um, traveling Wilburys who have agreed to participate bob dylan has said no way jeff lynn and tom petty are there and george and they've just come back from what i believe was a liquid lunch or there was a liquid aspect to their lunch <laughs> yeah and they are having such a good time between the three of them but she can't lock into them no. and in the end she she is it's a train wreck of an interview mm. but the one person of of the three traveling Wilburys who tries to maintain a certain to keep keep the interview going and provide her with something that MTV can use for you know their news broadcast is George and his yeah. professionalism even in the midst of this train wreck of an interview I think comes through. I think that's testament to Cavett's skill as an interviewer. Actually, you know, I think yeah. he, you know, he he obviously was a familiar face by that point, and he's still a familiar face. So I think that's yeah. you know. I think that's what Moving on uh, from the early 70s, I think part of George's life, which is rarely discussed, is the late 70s, early 80s. This is a period, obviously, where he's domestically, he's very happy. He's married Olivia, who obviously he would remain his wife forevermore. Um, he's had a son. Uh, Danny is on the, arrived on the scene uh, in 77. So he's he's domestically he's very very happy commercially and critically those albums that come out you know after certainly after all things must pass but they're a little bit of the law of diminishing returns ch kind of chart entry wise rather than critically accepted um but some of the interviews that you get in the book from around that period I think are fascinating one that I really found I really wanted to hone in on was the Michael Jackson and Kid Jensen one um, which obviously is everyone's a... favourite well it's such a strange <laughs> because obviously Michael Jackson is one of the you know whatever it can be said about Michael Jackson you know certainly cultural icon wise he's someone that is certainly 
close to the Beatles in certain aspects, shall we say. And, and even though this interview is before his commercial peak, there he is sat with Kid Jensen, who is in, in the UK anyway, you know, a beloved radio figure, shall we say. And there's... And there's For a and, Canadian. Absolutely, yeah. And there is... <laughs> and there's George sat with Michael Jackson and they're reviewing records, aren't they? They're going through these songs. I'm dating a Canadian, by the way, so I... I, I you know, uh, <laughs> Fair enough. You know. Um, thanks for that disclaimer. Um, so yeah, um, our wonderful northern neighbours. Absolutely, absolutely. So they sat there and they're reviewing these, you know, mostly let's face it, quite unremarkable records. They're not going through the greatest ever, you know, the songs that have influenced them in their lives the most. They're just reviewing like that that week's releases. Yeah. What do yeah. you think the atmosphere? You know, what comes across from that interview about well, where George I'll, was? I'll tell you what I find fascinating about that interview. And by the way, I, I hear what you're saying about the post All Things Must Pass, um, uh, you know, um, uh, uh, you know, catalog yeah. of, of George's. Um, you know, there was always two or three, though, two or three tunes on every album that are standout tunes that are incredibly deep. And, you know, they just didn't lock into the the pop rock, you know, uh, radio commercial scene of the day, you know, and that's uh, unfortunate. But, you know, where things are so splintered today because the internet and everything, and there's like genres and subgenres, etc., I'm sure George would have found a home, you know. Uh, but because everything was being measured against his past successes, uh, his past triumphs, and of course the Beatles, and all the Beatles reissues and and yeah. and uh, new discoveries that would come out, that's a hell of a competition to go up against, with you being George Harrison. So the fact that Gone Tropo, you know, is yeah. not one of his best remembered albums, I'm I'm not surprised, you know. Um, the, um, you know, 1979 interview with Michael Jackson, it, it could only have happened just by chance. Yeah. I mean, the, the idea that it could have been planned, forget it. Uh, you know, it was one of those moments where the Jacksons were coming through Europe. Uh, Michael is still in the group, the Jacksons. They're not called the Jackson 5 anymore. You know, they're signed to Epic, which would then become his label where he would have the huge successes with uh, uh, Off the Wall, and then, of course, Thriller and the world would land at his feet, you know. Um, and it's it's that moment just as he's beginning to record Off the Wall. And what I find very interesting is that you've got two incredible musical uh, figures, incredibly creative trying to get out of a situation that they have become part of from a very young age that is stifling their creativity, you know. George headed with the Beatles and he got out in 1970. Almost 10 years later, it would take uh, Michael Jackson to do the same. But he, it, in Michael's words, you can hear him talking about and he gets very excited when George starts talking about songwriting. And, of course, there's that funny moment where he goes, Oh, something? That's your tune? I thought that was Lennon-McCartney. And and George says, you know, yeah, everybody thinks that. You know? I mean, 
talk about like, uh, you know, a, 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 one of those finds that I was just so proud to have in this book. It, it's a punchline. It's a T-shirt. It's a bumper sticker. You know, everybody thinks that. And, you know, it's it, it goes to the heart of where both of them were at at that point. Yeah. Um, you know, the other thing that I find very interesting in there is that, you know, uh, Michael has just historically has just been working with Quincy Jones for the first time on The Wiz. And at the very end of, of this discussion, which really is an interview within a kind of jukebox jury, yeah. you know, kind of setup, and the music that, that they're playing is just okay, yeah. you know. Eddie Money and, you know, they, they play some reggae, you know, of the day, you know, that's interesting. But uh, it's, you know, they, they could have gone a lot deeper, let's put it that way. Um, but, you know, George, uh, uh, Michael starts to talk about the whiz. And he has a very kind of strong Afro, Afrocentric, African-American viewpoint of what the story is about. And he has read the book. And it's great. I mean, that suddenly the kind of steel that's within him comes out. And uh, uh, you can hear both the DJ or you can kind of read it in the words, you know, that the, that uh, uh, Jensen and George kind of pull back and yeah. say, OK, thank yeah. you. Thank you yeah. for sharing that point of view. My favorite moment from that interview is Michael asked George uh, did the Beatles write all their own early music and uh, Michael expresses some surprise that the fact that Lennon McCartney produced all those songs and a very George line is they were clever fellows, weren't they? Or clever little fellows, something like that. Oh, that's a fantastic clever, line. Yeah, they were clever, clever little, little fellows. fellows. Yeah, because he just says, how is that possible? Yeah. You know, because he's really trying to develop his own songwriting skills at that point. You know, don't stop till you get enough, etc. Mm. You know, and and so he's he's coming from that angle. You know, Absolutely. I mean, he's been at Motown where all the all the songs have been written for him within a kind of factory yeah. kind of setting. You know, yeah. you got your songwriters, you got your you know uh, uh, studio musicians behind you. You've got your engineers. Everything's kind of supplied for you, mm. and now it's no, I want to get out on my own and do my stuff. No wonder he was hanging out with Stevie so much. You know? Absolutely. And of course, would then form a friendship with Paul later, uh, right. a, a few years down the line. Well, you know, and there's an interview that um, is done with George in 89, where he kind of laughs about the 79 interview. Oh, right. Because, okay. you know, so much has transpired. And he goes, yeah, I remember I did this BBC interview with, uh, with Michael. And, uh, you know, now he's owning the Northern Songs catalog, you know, excuse me. He's got all the Beatles tunes. Yeah. And, you know, he's like, I wonder if he's going through it looking for something at this point, even though I, I did tell him it's my <laughs> tune. It's it's not, you know, Northern Songs. A, um, a George Harrison, Michael Jackson collaboration is one that we could ponder. I, I can't quite see where that, that would have gone, a musical collaboration. Obviously, I think the, the songs with Paul were successful. Certainly the songs on Paul's record, Say, 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 uh, The Man. I think sure. I can't quite imagine George doing The Girl Is Mine. I can't, <laughs> I can't imagine I that little... I can't that. The, the, the speech at the end, I can't imagine... <laughs> 
you know, I'm a lover, not a fighter, and all that kind of stuff. But um, no, anyway. No, but but uh, you know what? I mean, the thing is with George as a collaborator, this guy was able to find common ground with everyone, you know, uh, that he worked with. But I think it would have been on a much deeper, you know, uh, more more resonating kind of level than uh, what Paul, you know, and uh, you know, this is kind of like um, armchair you know, psychology and whatnot, and I don't want to get too deep into it. But, you know, with, with George, because uh, there was a fun aspect of the Traveling Wilburys, you know, for sure. It wasn't that everything was deep and philosophical and spiritual, but there was this kind of thing where George brought out, uh, 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 you know, uh, 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 the creative side of Jeff Lynne. Mm. The, the 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 melodic side of of Tom Petty, mm. you know some great lyrics from Bob Dylan, mm. and all of them were able to work within that context in a way that they don't often do. I mean, there are not many Tom Petty collaborations throughout his career, or Dylan, no. you know, or and Jeff. I mean, the the ultimate loner, you know, yeah, absolutely, you know, he that... was ELO after he got rid of everyone else, <laughs> and he's and he's still today ELO essentially even more yeah. so today uh, that the Wilburys move nicely onto my next kind of point so looking at the late 80s obviously George releases Cloud Nine he's been right. quite he spent most of the mid 80s and the, the early 80s working with handmade films focusing on that um, building that up into what was a very successful at certain points very successful film studios there are obviously some turkeys amongst those films uh, that like any film studio, but there were some, some some successes starting with Life of Brian going through on from there. So I think George should be um, thought of as a, you know as a successful film producer. So then Cloud Nine arrives, he and it's a hit. It's a you know it's a huge hit really, both sides of the Atlantic and elsewhere. And then the Wilburys. It's happen. kind of a return for him. It is. It's funny Cloud Nine because it's not a record now that's particularly well remembered i don't think because it's such an 80s sound um but i mean i have i mean i'm of the age where that was my first introduction to george harrison sure. was cloud nine and it had some great you know i've got some maybe some slightly misguided affection for it but i think it's a fine album and it certainly brought george back to the forefront and gave us a lot of interviews that you collate in your book so i think cloud nine and the wilburys he reaches it's not, I mean, it's sort of a comeback, as you say, but I mean, he, he was, you know, you can't really be a Beatle and not be, a, be around, which he certainly was. What do you think of the interviews of this time? Do you think he was comfortable going back in front of the press again to promote Cloud9 and, and the Wilburys? I don't think comfort was ever a consider, much of a consideration for George, to tell you the truth. Uh, I think that he, when he did it, he knew that he was putting on Beatle George or George Harrison, the, the, the solo Beatle, you know, the solo ex-Beatle, you know, uniform and, and marching out. And he talked about this. He would talk about the fact that he would go to work. He said, this is my version of putting on, you know, the, the milkman's outfit and yeah. going to deliver the milk. Yeah. Or, you know, a fireman's outfit and waiting for, you know, the, the, the bell to ring, you know, the alarm to sound. Um, you know, he was aware of his job and what his position was and what was expected of him. And he did not mind that. 
Um, you know, you mentioned something earlier about, you know, tax man. And even, you know, the, this idea of spirituality is so central to George Harrison's DNA by this point. He's also a businessman, and he's very much involved, even though he says he hates it. He does not pull back from his businessman role at Handmade Films, you know, which ultimately leads to a, a complete dissolution of the company because of his breakup with his manager, you know, of, of, of the time who was co-owner of Handmade Films. Um, and also, you know, the, the idea of, of, of uh, um, Dark Horse Records, you know, and his relationship first with A&M and then with Warner Brothers and ultimately with uh, EMI. You know, he is on top of his business and the idea of making money and being spiritual at the same time are not opposites. You know, they are they work together for him, you know, and it's very clear that that's something that he is aware of and, and he wants to participate in to a certain degree, you know. But, um, you know, uh, I, I think that you know the 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 interview that you're you're talking about now or you know let let let's put it this way you know his involvement with um uh uh handmade you know and the role of handmade films was incredibly important and there's this one interview i was able to find from film comments uh, magazine here in, in yeah. the US where he basically only talks about that and I'm so happy to find it because if you ask me the dream of what was Apple Corps at the end of the 60s with the Beatles the idea of not only supporting their own creative projects together and separate as Beatles but their friends their circle the people, uh, creative people that they discover along the way. George is the one Beatle who carried that mission forward into their solo years. And Handmade Films and Dark Horse Records were two incredible examples of that. Paul never starts a label, neither does George or Ringo, you know? Um, and it's a headache. It's a huge headache, you know? Handmade Films, listen, they were there to basically be the uh, kind of white night you know for a lot of independent uh, film projects like monty python like a lot of bob hoskins uh, titles with nail and i talk about an independent film that had such a huge message and impact um you know i still remember the first time i saw that back in the 80s and it was like uh you know i walked out with like the hair on my you know, necks sticking up because it was like, yay, independent cinema. Yes. You know, it can carry a message and be fun and reflective and, you know, have great acting in it with a low budget. And then, of course, you mentioned a turkey. You know, the next thing that happens is they get locked into Shanghai Surprise with that you know, a young Madonna and Sean Penn. Madonna's in her first explosion of popularity and Sean Penn is the new, you know, young uh, stud, you know, as far <laughs> as male stars in Hollywood. And they're together in this film. And it's a flop. It's terrible Beautiful. to watch, you know, but it made a lot of money. It did make money, you know, in the, in the long run. Yeah. Just a very small aside, as you mentioned, with Nell and I, which is per one of my personal favourite films, actually. A film that I watched at university 
far too many times, probably when I should have been studying. Um, I won't I, tell anyone. I, thank you. I uh, I heard a very uh, anecdote, I think from Bruce Robinson, who of course wrote the film, where they showed it to George. Um, of course, George let them use While My Guitar Gently Weeps in that film, which would have cost a huge amount of money to license otherwise. Yeah. And thankfully that he did. But apparently his one comment for the whole film, the entire project was, there's a scene where Paul McGann and Richard E. Grant are, are driving down a motorway uh, to, head to, to head out to the country to try and escape the strife of London. And George looked at the... And, and they're drunk. And, oh, yeah, the, the, yes, oh that, wait a minute, that was every time they were drunk. <laughs> I know. Not a good example to set for uh, anybody these days. Or then, uh, George's one comment on that scene was he, he looked at the screen and said... That road wasn't there in 1969. And that was it. <laughs> that was his contribution to that. And by that point, obviously, they couldn't reshoot anything. So um, very George, though. Very George. That's so great. That's so great. You know, uh, in, in the film world, they talk about notes. You okay. know, when you, when you, when you yeah. send a rough draft or a first pass or whatever to all the Hollywood you know the the higher ups at the at the studio and whatnot. I need the notes so we can start editing. You know, and not not you know push the uh, deadline back anymore. And th that's a perfect. That's one note. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, you could do about it though. No, you not, certainly not. No. However, I have you know streaming, and I think this is worth looking at. Is that there is a kind of documentary on with Nail and I that where they've gone back to the actors and to Bruce, mm. etc., and had them talk about different scenes mm. and that amazing drug dealing character. I, uh, I forget his name. Danny, the drug um, dealer. Yeah. Danny. You know. yeah. Right. And the lines he comes up with and the way he delivers it, you oh, know, yeah. yeah. I, I, you know, I think it's the voice that probably launched a thousand comedy careers on British TV. Because yeah. I've, there's so many British, you know, uh, uh, TV shows I've seen where there's been this kind of hippie-like character with that voice. That that character was so successful that uh, Ralph Brown, the actor, he is in Wayne's World 2. I'm not, I don't know if you've ever seen Wayne, Wayne's World 2 or can remember Wayne's World 2, but there's a character called Del Preston in Wayne's World 2, and it's a complete carbon copy of Danny the Drug Dealer from Wivnell and I. That's right. You're right. Okay. <laughs> That's how successful that And yes, that I know was. Wayne's World and Wayne's World too. I'm Good. sorry, it's you know, no, no, no. I'm it's in, in America. If you actually want to call yourself American, okay. it's required watching. I see. I see. Well, good to know. Good to know. Just uh, going back away from with Nat and I, um, the Wilburys. Then, as as I, as I mentioned, I mean the interviews in the book that he gives with the Wilburys. As you say, he seems content. You know, he loved being in a band. I think more than anything else you know, for a lot of reasons. Do you think that the Wilburys were, you know, a, a really happy point in George's life? And do you think of he could have, and do you think he could you have know. gone on making more music with them? Or do you think it was something that could only happen for that time? You know, I, I mean, once again, you know, what one more uh, kind of uh, project that reflects his, his willingness and ability 
to kind of lead projects like like having his own record label and film company was was uh, traveling Wilburys would not have happened without George no. and a lot of the business stuff and the kind of delivery of the music to Warner's uh, decisions about the packaging and the the album covers etc was left to George. And George took it on to to be that person. So, if there was a leader of the Wilburys, it was George Harrison, you know. And he stayed in touch with Roy and Bob and Tom and you know uh, Jeff to to for the rehearsals and the uh, and the continuing recording project, etc. Um, it's too bad they you know never toured, you know. Um, uh, but you know the whole uh, but they did appear, you know. Yeah. Were, interviews and Videos. performances but um you know that that was george making it happen and he would not have been in that driver's seat unless he wanted to be there mm. i don't think he felt put upon and i think that it it, it kind of connected with what were probably the happiest points that he had with the beatles you know, everybody still talks about the let it be sessions and God damn it. You know, what I hate about that is that it's and, and you know, thank you, Peter Jackson, for bringing this new documentary out. But, and, you know, I, I, I don't want that should not be seen as the typical Beatles kind of moment, no. because how else would they have been able to generate you know, all those great recordings unless they had this amazing, magical once-in-a-lifetime kind of connection uh, personally and in the studio. And I think this brought him back to that level where he was like, I am not, you know, George Harrison with a band who is, like, serving me, but I am George Harrison with equals. And it was the closest thing, I think, after the Beatles that he ever got to replicating that kind of equality across the, you know, the point and that working in that kind of creative context must have been such a beautiful return for him i think that's a that's a fascinating point about the equality side of things maybe that's why obviously touring wise as you say there's only that 74 tour there's the japan tour in the early 90s with eric clapton that's the only time that he ever goes on the road yeah maybe it's because he was you know the leader of that band that led to the fact that he felt uncomfortable, maybe, you know, why he didn't do more touring. You know, I think he definitely could have I, toured I, I think more. this t actually ties in, Joe, with the whole idea of he is very aware of the business side, okay? And the idea of having a band, a working band that is touring um, and, you know, you put musicians and the crew on retainer, and then it becomes this self-serving kind of project that is apart from him. You know, uh, he's very aware of that and he's not willing to make that commitment. He doesn't want to let people down. He doesn't want to let audiences down. He doesn't want to let um, the musicians down by making all these promises and not being able to deliver it or getting stuck in a machine where he is now going to be pulled away from being with Olivia, being uh, pulled away from having, you know, his... Uh, uh, time with Danny, you know, when Danny is born, and even with just gardening at Friar Park, yeah. you know? I mean, these are the priorities for him. He's yeah. very clear in his head, and I think that's what it comes down to, is that the touring 
business, mm. the business of touring was something that he was not willing to make uh, a personal, you know, um, commitment to. Which is a shame because I think he could have, you know, played some fantastic shows. Yeah, you, you, know, you know, one of the interviews he talks about this um, actually, and it's not a professional interview. It's it's a, a radio call-in show yeah, called yeah. Rockline from '91 or '92. Yeah. And um, it's no, it's 92 because it's just after the Japanese um, tour with Eric Clapton. And, you know, he talks very openly about the fact he goes, the reason this tour happened is because Eric has his band. Yeah. And Eric was so beautiful to share his band with me. You know, Nathan East on on uh, on on bass and Greg Fillingaines on on keyboards talk about the AAA list. <laughs> the triple A yeah. list of studio cats of that day, mm. you know, and of course they're going to be able to do his material and get it up to the level where he's going to feel very good about what's being reformed. And thank God they recorded that tour. Thank you. you know? I was just going to say the film of that, I've got the dark horse years DVD uh, here at home and it's, yeah, it's the band is so tight. George looks comfortable. Uh, Eric, Eric is there as well. Happy to, you know, Eric, you know, Eric Clapton, a big star then as now. I think Eric plays quite a key role in that in those those shows because he does let George take center stage. Okay, he's not a Beatle and won't ever be. But it, I, it's I, probably I, the most amazing gift hmm. that that Eric could have given George. I'm going to let you tour. I've got a beautiful band that's together, and all you have to do is be part of it and make some money. You know. Yeah. And and you don't have to take on that business aspect of creating the band, rehearsing it, paying for it, keeping them on the road, you know, finding the shows, et cetera, et cetera. I, I don't think a lot of people out there realize just the incredible investment that is necessary for a major rock band. Well, not anymore, you know, with, with lockdown. Yeah. But, you know, even up till today, the, the investment that's necessary on the part of, you know, the artists themselves to do a world tour is incredible. And it can hurt you. It can set you back. And in the case, look at what it did to Michael Jackson. God, you know, I mean, yeah. I'm so sorry to get grim. Yeah, you know? no. But, you know, it, it's it's a tough business and it ain't for the, you know, it's for the young, for the young and healthy and for those who have their head together. Let's I mean, that way. of which you could certainly say Paul McCartney is one because he's someone that a bit like Dylan and the Stones have constantly yeah. toured. Uh, right. But there's a price to pay. You know, Paul is not doing any gardening in his place. <laughs> and, you know, he doesn't have this family that's growing up. And, I mean, he, he did. He did, yeah. You know, and he brought them along with him. Yeah. You know, he was able to do it. And by the way, let's put my wife on keyboards, you know. <laughs> Clever. And, and, and that's how he handled it. So Paul was very aware of that, too. And yeah. and John was, too. And I think that's why you didn't see many John tours at all. Well, you, you know, see any, you know. He, any, he, he, actually, come to think of it. All he did was the show in New York in 72. I mean, I think yeah. John certainly would have toured, you know, in the 80s. I think there, there were plans in place to tour double fantasy but definitely yoko would have been there with him almost certainly sean would have been there with him he would have taken that whole did that whole shebang on the road with him uh, yeah. but yeah there are certain people that are built for touring dylan and the stones and and paul and george and ringo I think, with his whole, ringo, whole yeah. star approach 
yeah. you know let me bring out all my friends and yeah. so it's a wonderful hang every night you know but he doesn't he doesn't do it that often no. you know and he no. is somewhat of a homebody and like i said i think there's a private side to ringo of all the beatles i think he has been able to compartmentalize more than uh, the uh, the other three definitely it's something that he definitely doesn't get enough credit for moving on toward the end of the of the book now another interview that i found fascinating and an interview that i remember watching as it as it went out uh is the um my pronunciation of the surname now could be wrong so please correct me but the john fugel okay. john fugel fugel sang interview uh yeah. again with ravi in in 1997 now this finds george um another interesting point in his life obviously the main thing that's happened between the the Wilburys and now, I suppose for George, certainly kind of work-wise, is the anthology's happened. So he's right. George has spent two or three years going back, which is something that he wasn't wont to do a lot of, uh, despite being constantly, as your book testifies, constantly asked about the past. But he relents, maybe for financial reasons, maybe for other reasons we'll... We never know for sure. And he spends some time, obviously, with, with Paul and with Ringo, recording music, giving interviews, etc. Uh, obviously, this interview with, with Fuglesang is to promote Ravi's album, Chance, which is, I think, recently uh, reissued or, or about to be reissued, actually. Um, and it's, it's, I think I'm right in saying it's the last TV interview that he ever gave, certainly, you know, length of any notable length. Um, and it's... You can tell Fugel Sang is, you know, nervous a little. Maybe he's a he's a younger guy. I can only imagine how I would have felt sat in in that chair. Uh, he's interviewed Paul, isn't he? I think a few weeks previously in the UK. So he's got he's got two beers. No, no, no. That's oh, is that after. Up. Well, okay, it's, okay. It's just after. Okay, so he's, but he's, he's already on the in in the hot seat because exactly. he's about to fly over to the UK to talk to Paul. So he's aware of that certainly while he's talking to George. Uh, what do you think, George? you know at, at this point in his life so do you think the anthology had an effect on him do you think the interview shows george again in a contented place um I, I'm, I'm smiling here just because I, i'm remembering now that there's another interview the anthony de curtis interview for from 87 took place in at friar park Okay. in the UK for Rolling Stone's 20th anniversary issue. And he had just spoken with Paul like two days before. And that was another interviewer interview situation where Paul and George were, were uh, kind of interviewed back to back by the same interviewer. Okay. And, and uh, I just smile because, you know, Anthony DeCurtis remembers his interview with George opening with, Oh, you, you just talked with Paul. How is he? Mm-hmm. <laughs> fascinating yeah. <laughs> you know obviously there was distance between those two you know um but in 97 uh you know george is and you can go on youtube you can see uh clips from this interview quite easily mm. john uh, john sang is nervous mm. but i think uh from what i've uh, what i've heard uh uh in interviews that he has done about that interview um he had you know, his earpiece in with his producer saying, ask him about the Beatles, ask him about Paul, ask him about Rock Hall of Fame. But, you know, meanwhile, George is getting very deep and spiritual mm. and and George is not looking great. He's looking kind of uh, gaunt yeah. a little bit. 
you know, unshaven, you know, yeah, but, yeah. you know, kind of still hip and, and, and whatnot. And then, of course, uh, publicly, it would be announced within a year or two that, you know, he was uh, battling cancer um, and that the and they would try all sorts of stuff, you know, from Switzerland to Staten Island here in New York City to, to L.A. to all sorts of things to save him over the next you know, a uh, few years uh, until 2001 when he, when he, you know, passes. But you can see that there's a, this incredible seriousness that um, kind of comes across. And he is not pulling back any punches. You know, he's, um, you know, where he is in, in his life at that point. You know, he's, you're starting to see gray hairs. And he's... Um, you know, he wants to deliver his message about, you know, uh, the way he sees the world, you know. And there's a lot of, you can f almost feel it, there's disappointment and there's hope. And that at a certain point, John asks him, you know, um, uh, you know, he, they're talking about the 60s. They're talking about the hope and the dreams and the idyllic moments of the 1960s that the Beatles kind of created the soundtrack for. And, um, you know, uh, John, uh, sorry, George asked the question, uh, you know, so, you know, where are these, uh, you know, hippie minded, you know, spiritually minded people? And John comes back with a little quip. They're all driving Volvos now, you know, George. And of course, you can almost see it in John's face that even though he comes from comedy and stand up, right. you know, and whatnot, he regrets saying it right away and then but george doesn't respond to it in any sort of negative fashion god bless george you know he just continues on and you know and then uh uh john asks him so you are an optimist george right and he goes yes you have to be you have to be and so just recently uh joe i did an interview talking about what would George think about what's going on today, you know? And my only response was that I believe he would still be dedicated to his mission. He would be disappointed. But, you know, in his viewpoint, you know, coming from a kind of Vedic uh, Hindu uh, background and teaching, this is but a blip on the radar screen that we're going through. It's a test that we have to get through. And we will evolve and be stronger as a result. That's what life is about. And of course, in the Vedic tradition, they don't measure stuff by 80-year lifetime cycles. Their cycles are 25,000 years long. So the role of Jesus and Buddha and, you know, all these other godheads and whatnot are, are moments when the divine kind of slices into our reality and reminds us of what our role is, which is to evolve and make this whole planet a better place. And I think that's ultimately the lesson that I got from this book. I think that's a lesson that uh, definitely we should all heed. And I think George would definitely have, uh, have heeded that and been aware of that. To conclude then, uh, it's, it's a fascinating collection of books. I think it's, it's a collection of interviews that we needed to see. I think there are, you know, we all know about the famous John interviews with Rolling Stone and Playboy. There must be, you know, thousands of Paul interviews where at times it's the same stuff. 
over and over again that that he goes through. Um, but I think George's words are words that you know, twenty first century should definitely heed, um, and they should definitely be listened to. And they're collected beautifully in this book. I, I just wanted to close. What do you think? was the main thing that you got from this book about George? Was there something that you, that you understood about George that you didn't quite understand previously that, that you, you got from the interviews? Uh, it, it, for me, you know, I had a feeling, you know, it was, it was definitely, and, and, you know, I went into it saying, Oh, I don't want to have too much about the Beatles. Once he's done talking about the Beatles, I want to, you know, make sure that there's not too much overlap. And then I realized I can't do that. I got it, you know, his talking just about the Beatles, for example, is a way of measuring how he grew, how he evolved, you know, and that the disappointment and the the joy of being in the Beatles is there, the disappointment of being in the Beatles, and then the disappointment of the breakup, and then the long and winding settlements, as one author, you know, one journalist puts it, that eventually, you know, led to the uh, ability to bring out all the uh, Beatles uh, stuff. In fact, I don't think I answered your question about the anthologies, you know. Yeah, uh, I'll, I'll actually, going you know, back to I, that then, I, was that something that know, had a big uh, impact on George? Well, the, the, the point that he makes in one interview, and this is at the end of the Long and Winding Settlement, which is around 89, um, is that he talks about the fact that now all this stuff that Apple controls can come out and we can decide how it's presented. Mm. So I don't think anthology and the fact that, you know, Derek Taylor, his, his lifelong friend was in the uh, driver's seat mm. with the anthology uh, series, the book, the three uh, album, you know, uh, 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 collections that came out was what was indicative of that George was was agreeing to this and he did interviews you know for it to promote it what came before is what he complained about which was I think it was a a, a documentary series called the complete Beatles is that the name of the it? complete Beatles as narrated yeah. by Malcolm McDowell came out in about 84 um right and he hated it and right. he hated also the you know stuff like the the uh, um, the the play in the uh, um, uh, West End play. What was it? John Paul George and Bert and Bert. You know uh, these kind of revisitations that had nothing to do with the the Beatles um, control or Beatles input. He was he was not fans of you know right. he was not a fan of the, of those things. And the anthology, I think put the control back in their hands even though he still now had to work with paul and 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 uh ringo and and yoko yeah. you know i think he was more comfortable with that mm. because this was happening in a in a way that you know he could he could say what he wanted to say listen he was invested in it you know it wasn't like he just shut the door on the beatles um he you know he was proud of it he was hurt during the punk years, when the Beatles were were kind of being looked upon as that which we do not want to be, because they took it to an excess that doesn't reflect where that spirit of rock and roll should be, and he's like, no, absolutely, it was all about rock and roll, and it was about opening doors of creativity and possibility for anyone, you know, and and yet, you know, at a certain point, he realizes, especially once he deals with Danny. 
you know, there's that wonderful interview. And I think this is a great kind of uh, final moment where Danny discovers the Beatles through his father's performance at a Prince's Trust show, you know, in the 80s. And, um, I mean, he's obviously doing Here Comes the Sun. He's doing, uh, you know, While My Guitar Gently Weeps. And he's up there with George. And his son is seeing him perform for the very first time. And his son must have been like 10 or 12 mm. at, the, at the time. 10, I think. You know, and he says, Danny, what, what do you think? And he goes, and he had just discovered also the Beatles through his father's record collection. Okay, so he knew the music through the record collection, but he had never seen his dad perform before. He goes, well, why didn't you do Johnny Be Good or, or uh, Twist and Shout? You know, that's the Beatles that he wanted to experience. Yeah. <laughs> so even coming from his own son, you know, it was like, you know, everyone saw the Beatles in a different way and at a different period that was kind of reflective of the time period they were in. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this has been a, a wonderful hour or so's chat, Ashley. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, I think this is the book. As have I. Thank you. Thank you. This is a book that I think I think uh, definitely needs to happen. And, and I think myself and most, if not all, my listeners uh, are glad it did happen. Ashley Carr, thank you very much. Joe, thank you. It's been a pleasure.